Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Our text for our sermon is the gospel history according to the evangelist Mark, as recorded in chapter 14, verses 43 through 46. Just then, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. A crowd was with him, armed with swords and clubs. They were from the chief priests, the experts in the law, and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal, saying, The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. He went right to Jesus and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. They laid hands on him and arrested him. This is the gospel history of our Lord. I don't want to delve deeply into a social studies lesson, but America is a very highly individualistic culture. That's most of the people, when they moved over here, abandoned families, maybe abandoned is too strong a word, but left their families to come over here, and lots of times they would never see them again. And when you look especially into areas like Wyoming, people who settle that tend to really fall into what they call the rugged individualism of the West. They're very self-sufficient and want to be left alone. But in contrast to that is culture, is what they call the culture of shame. Those are where if you do something, you commit a sin, you do something wrong, a cultural taboo, you're not only bringing shame on yourself, how dare you do that, the Smith-Joneses don't act that way, you're bringing shame on your family, on your ancestors, on your village, on your employer. So America is not really a culture of shame, but the nation of Israel, at the, especially at the time Jesus walked the earth, was in fact a culture of shame. And so our overall theme as we look at Christ going to the cross and on the cross during this passion, uh, during this Lent season, is see the shame of the cross with our shameless eyes. Now today, as we look at Judas's betrayal, we're going to narrow that down to how could you let a friend betray you? They judge a boy by his friends, and all of mine are trash. They say you find your own level. Well, I'm a snake in the grass, said the classic country song I remember playing on the radio when I was a kid. Well, that's kind of the attitude in, in America, but even in America, we still have some sayings that bring out the shame of being betrayed by a would-be friend, a close friend. For example, some people say a variant of it is, show me a man's seven closest friends and I will describe graphically to you the man. Or another is just simply, show me a man's close acquaintances and I will show you the man. Even still, with that, you go, wow, so if you have a friend who you know is going to betray you or who is a betrayer, what does that say about you? And although we are a highly individualistic culture, we still can't stand backstabbers today, can we? And even worse than being a backstabber, have you ever been, or just as bad, have you ever been in the awkward position of having one friend betray or backstab another friend and they didn't do it to you. You start in that awkward position as they start to resent each other and you kind of go, yeah, well, that backstabber backstabbed me as well and you've got to deal with that awkwardness. Here in America today, and especially in states that have bought into rugged individualism, a handshake means something. It means a business deal. It means honesty. It is what close friends do. 
We don't kiss each other in America. But all the more shameful is in those days at Jesus' time, close friends would give each other a kiss as a greeting and a sign that they were close friends. Now, again, in America, we tend to save that for family relationships and for uh, intimacy, for example, with lovers. But, but all, the more, we're, all the more than just giving a very firm, friendly handshake in Wyoming, the way Judas chooses to betray Jesus is despicable of all, with a, with a symbol, a gesture of being very close friends that trust each other. And as we ask that question of shame, how could you let a friend betray you? All the more is that, that emphasizes that Jesus let his friend betray him is that Jesus knew all along that he was going to betray him. For example, in the Bread of Life discourse, and to understand that, we go back to John chapter 5, where Jesus had fed the 5,000. Remember, they only counted the men. There was such a large crowd. And, and so if every man was married and brought one child with them, and most families were much larger than that, then there was at least 15,000 people. Well, the next day they come across the lake and want to force Jesus to be their bread king. And Jesus explains to them that he's the bread, they, a spiritual bread that they need. And at the end of that bread of life discourse, we're told in John chapter 6, verses 54 through 71, the one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like your fathers ate and died. He's referring to the manna there. The one who eats this bread will live forever. He said these things while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. When they heard it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can listen to this, to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, asked them, Does this cause you to stumble in your faith? What if you would see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh does not help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who would not believe and the one who would betray him. He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's given to him by my father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus asked the twelve, you do not want to leave too, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, one of the twelve, because Judas was going to betray Jesus. So a year and a half before Jesus is crucified, he's already telling Judas, you're going to betray me. He's already giving him strong hints. And that's actually Jesus saying, you don't have to do this. I know you're going to do this. Well, doesn't that make it all the more shameful that he would stick around with this guy for a year and a half? In fact, when we come to the night that he is betrayed, John tells us in chapter 13, verses 1 through 11, before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved those who were his own in the world, he loved them to the end. By the time the supper took place, the devil had already put the idea into the heart of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. 
Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. He got up from the supper, laid aside his outer garment. He took a towel and tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, you do not understand what I'm doing now, but later you will understand. Peter told him, you will never, ever wash my feet. Jesus replied, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Lord, not just my feet, Simon Peter replied, but also my hands and my head. Jesus told him, a person who has a bath, had, who's had a bath needs only to wash his feet, but his body is completely clean and you are clean but not all of you. Indeed, he knew who was going to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. A little later on that night in John chapter 13, verses 18 through 21, we're told, I'm not talking about all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is so that the scripture may be fulfilled. The one who eats bread with me has raised his heel against me. I'm telling you this right now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you may believe that I am he. Amen, amen, I tell you, whoever receives anyone I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying this, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Amen, amen, I tell you, one of you will betray me. Jesus warns Judas over and over again, I know what you're doing. Well, again... Doesn't that bring the shame all the more that he allows this to happen? And sadly, earlier on, when we were told those words, one who eats bread with me has raised his hill against me. That goes back to a messianic psalm that King David had wrote literally a thousand years earlier. See, David had prophesied and David kind of fulfills it like a shadow. But the real clarity of the whole thing comes in Christ. It's a messianic psalm. And in Psalm 41, verses 7 through 9, we are told, All who hate me whisper together against me. They plan evil for me. They say, A deadly affliction is poured out on him. He will never get up from the place where he lies. Even a man who is at peace with me, a man whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has raised up his heel to step on me. And there Jesus is in the Passover feast, eating bread with Judas, saying, I know you're going to betray me. And all the more, the trust that's brought there. Let us not forget that Jesus had allowed Judas to be the treasurer. And in fact, a few days earlier, when Jesus had come into the house of Lazarus, his sister, Mary, had taken that year's worth of perfume and anointed Jesus' feet. She knew Jesus was going to die. He'd been telling his disciples. For some reason, it didn't register with them. But by the Holy Spirit, it did register with her. And then Judas gets upset and says, shouldn't this have been sold? It's a year's wages. This should have been given to the poor. But John in his gospel says he really could care less about the poor. He kept the money bag and he wanted that money so he could steal some of it. Judas was in a position of trust, yet Jesus knew all along that he was going to be doing this. And he even knew the amount that Judas was going to get paid for betraying him. This, remember, the Sanhedrin will pay him so that they can get him arrested away from the crowd so that the crowds won't protect us. Because about 580 BC, uh, or 480 BC, Zechariah uh, prophesies in chapter 11, verses 12 through 13, Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, pay me my wages, but if it does not, withhold them. So they weighed out 30 pieces of silver as my wages. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, this magnificent price at which they valued me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and I threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. 
Now, in a culture of shame, you'd say, you let this guy be your friend, you let him be a treasurer, and you, and Jesus is true God, you knew all along he was going to betray you? How? How could you let that happen? How could you let him steal from the offerings that supported your ministry? Well, before we answer the whole question, we got to clarify, because whenever you preach on Judas, people sometimes think that God had determined that Judas had to be had to betray him. So there we make a distinction between big terms, God's antecedent and God's consequent will. God's antecedent will is what God says. This has to happen. I don't care. This is my will and it must happen. So, for example, it is God's antecedent will that he die for our sins and we be offered salvation. Nothing's going to get in the way of that. His consequent will is what he determines as a consequence of other human action. And so in the case of Judas, we got to remember God is above time. He created time, including Jesus, who is the son of God. And, and Jesus is the one who would begin time. So uh, who would speak out those words, let there be light. So God, knowing all things, knew, for example, the Sanhedrin's plot to murder him thousands of years before it even happened and would plan to use that to place Jesus on the cross. He knew that the crowds would not allow them to arrest him and he knew that Judas would reject his grace and would be willing to betray him. So as a consequence of that, he planned to use it and even had it recorded in those areas that I've already mentioned to the Old Testament and a few others so that the people would recognize, yes, this is definitely the Messiah. So do not think that God determined in advance that Judas had to betray him. God knew Judas's heart that Judas would betray him. And so he planned to use that as the way through which Jesus would peacefully, or not peacefully to him, but uh, so that it wouldn't cause great destruction to the crowds and stuff, rebellions, so that Jesus would be put on the New Testament altar. Jesus was part of that plan so that you and I would be saved. So now we can answer our question. See the shame of the cross with our shameless eyes. How could you let a friend betray you? If the God-man knew all along he was going to betray him, then the answer is clearly because he is the God of grace, the God of mercy, the God of love, the God of kindness. Think about how all along Judas had been called to be one of the inner 12, meaning he got to hear over and over again that Jesus was the God man, the savior, the one who would keep the law for us in our place, which we cannot keep even in our thoughts for a minute and who would then take the punishment for our sins on that cross, have our punishment poured upon him, our eternal punishment. And so Judas had the privilege of hearing that. Jesus was wooing and winning him. There's no need to betray me. You can be one of my sheep. Judas had the privilege of doing what we today call evangelism, sharing the good news and pointing to people as, as he traveled with Jesus and was sent to villages and stuff. There, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here is the God-man, your Savior. He got to do miracles and the miracles weren't to say look at me I'm a disciple of Jesus look at how great I am they were to point out that the message of the evangelism that I've been blessed to share with you that Jesus is the Messiah the Savior that he has come to save us well these miracles confirm that this is a message from God he got to perform baptisms and there there's no flash and bang like we would think, but there the Holy Spirit gets sealed into people's hearts. He got to baptize others. He had the privilege of doing all of this ministry that should have wooed and won him so that he would say, yes, I want to embrace this ministry. And the sad thing is, he resisted the Holy Spirit instead. 
Instead, he loved that money more than he loved God. He trusted in those 30 pieces of silver more than he trusted in the God-man to save him. And when he saw the consequences and his world came crashing in, what did he do? He despaired. He did not trust in the very one he had been privileged to preach if he had just listened to the words he had used himself. He could have ran to him and said, Jesus, forgive me. Instead, he despaired and hung himself. Oh, but it could have been so much different. Peter had denied his Lord three times, denied him twice to a little slave girl who was probably 12, 14 years old. Peter's a tough guy. He could arm curl her. But Jesus came to Peter afterwards, after his ascension. Three times he asks after Peter had been fishing and recognizes his Lord and comes ashore. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Which was basically saying, Peter, you love me. Your denial, it was a sin. We understand your weakness. I died for that. Now get back to doing the work of that evangelism, of being the apostle that I called you to do. And had Judas not hung himself, he would have received that same grace. But he refused to trust that God was a loving, kind, merciful, loving God who had become his savior and instead made sure that it was sealed that he would not be able to receive that grace. He would have been able to have that forgiveness. And ultimately, he becomes one of the prime examples, the ultimate examples, one of the ultimate acts of resisting the Holy Spirit and driving him away, the Holy Spirit who creates faith. Why would Jesus let a a friend betray him? Because he was doing everything within his God-man powers to woo and win him for the gospel. Judas was not forced to betray him. He fought the Holy Spirit bitterly to do it, and the devil found a heart that was more than welcoming, saying, come on in, so that he could put the idea into Jesus' head. Well, Jesus also died for the sins of betraying our friends. Have you ever been betrayed? Have you ever betrayed a friend? It's easy for us to forget, especially when we're in our middle school, high school, and in some aspects, our college years, those times when you had a friend confide a secret in you and maybe quite by accident, you accidentally spilt it and they felt betrayed and hurt. Or maybe you had that happen to you. Maybe you have not even meaning to backstab somebody, somebody at work who was actually working for you and you didn't realize it and you thought they were working against you and you got them in trouble for a sin they hadn't even committed against you. Every one of us has been the victim of backstabbing. Every one of us has had times when we at least slipped and didn't mean to, but we betrayed a secret or we backstabbed somebody. Sometimes we even did it intentionally. Sometimes we have accidentally had our our eyes so set on a goal like the next promotion that we have stepped right over and stepped right on people who have helped us to get that promotion. What a blessing it is. Yes, Jesus never betrayed a friend, but he suffered being betrayed and he died for that sin too. And your savior knows what it's like. And so because of that, he has forgiven you. And not only that, by sending his Holy Spirit in your heart, he has given you the ability to trust in his forgiveness. And with that new person, he's empowered you not only to cling to him, but also to point to him to others as the sinner's greatest friend. See the shame of the cross with our shameless eyes. How could you hang out with somebody like that? How could you let a friend betray you? Because the God man is the God of grace, mercy, 
kindness, forgiveness, salvation. He is the sinner's greatest friend and he allowed himself to be betrayed that he could to be betrayed so that he could win salvation for you. Amen. And now, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen.